Hier komen we in vreemd. This is Red Flag Radio. My name's Ros Ward, and we're recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded. That always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So, as you know, we're a revolutionary socialist podcast, and we talk about what's going on in the world and history and theory with people who are active in um, combatants in the struggles in the world around us. And something I just wanted to mention today is obviously uh, if you have listened to this podcast before you'll know that we never have any adverts we never have any of those annoying moments in other podcasts where suddenly you hear a ding dong and there's some advert for something inane or we don't have advertorials either where we have you know some left-wing book publisher or whatever sort of um, plugging particular books and so on um, so the reason we can do that is because we get support from people like you who are listening and I want to thank again the people who support us on Patreon and you can join those uh, fine people if you go to patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast. So today uh, we're speaking and I should say on the 15th of May because things are changing very quickly uh, to Vashti Fox who's with us from Perth and Vashti, uh, welcome back to Red Flag Radio. Thanks. Great to be here. So Vashti um, is a contributor to Marxist Left Review and um, in that journal we uh, published the article Why the Australian State So Stridently Defends Israel, which Vashti wrote. Uh, so that's one you can check out. It's online. It's free. And also, of course, the many articles in Red Flag around the question of Palestine that Vashti has written and a bunch of other people have written stuff as well, of course, for the paper. And um, most recently, Vashti took on the kind of epic task, I think it is, of trying to explain uh, in as few words as possible, I think, because it's, it's an accessible volume. It's not a huge tome, but it tells you, I think, all of the essential things you need to know. And the book is called The Story of Palestine, Empire, Repression and Resistance, and it was published last year, and you can get that in Red Flag Books or um, at any socialist alternative stall at, at the protests if you're going to the uh, Palestine Solidarity Protests or any one of the socialist alternative um, centres for meetings. So that book is now being picked up and read because we are um, in the midst of a really um, uh, – rapidly changing situation in Palestine and Israel's attacks on the Palestinians are um, ramping up day by day, it appears. So Vashti, maybe we'll just start by like, you know, what is happening right now in Palestine and what's the what's the situation, what's the latest um, on the ground there? Yeah, okay. Well, as we speak, uh, the Palestinian territory of Gaza is once again under very serious bombardment from Israel. Uh, just overnight, the Israeli military um, released a statement saying that about 160 aircraft have struck over 150 targets. And keeping in mind that's the Israeli military and they usually underplay these things. Um, and all of that is really a very sanitised way of saying that all of the um, homes, shops, schools, um, all of these things are being targeted and destroyed. Uh, the death toll for Palestinians is now sitting at around 120, and I'm sure that's going to go up 
in a very short space of time. And out of those 120 Palestinians, at least 31 are children. And I was thinking about this and, and I think there's always a problem when we, we just kind of talk about numbers because a lot of the numbers don't really hit home. It doesn't really give you a sense of the actual people, the people who just three days ago or yesterday were breathing, moving, warm bodies. Um, and now those people are, you know, dead awaiting burial. And I think it's really important that we think about that um, when the news just kind of skims over those numbers, 120, 130, 10, 31. I think um, it's really important to try and talk and think um, behind the numbers. And also about the kind of effect that that bombardment has on people living somewhere like Gaza, that kind of degree of fear that within seconds, all of your family, your friends, your children could just be no more. Um, there was a, a really um, uh, moving article in the Age newspaper this morning that quoted a, a man who was living, um, a Gazan man who was living in Melbourne. Um, and he um, said this, and I thought I'd just read it out because it's really moving and revealing about the situation. Um, he said, how do you give hope to people that know they're going to die? if not today, tomorrow. My cousin sent me a video two days ago of her neighbour's house being blown up and she literally said to me word for word that they wear their best clothes to bed every night just in case in the morning when people find them they're ready to be buried in the clothes they're in. So they wear their best clothes to bed um, because they tell me it's not maybe we're going to die, it's when we're going to die and there's a real acceptance to that. Um, you know, and that's just an incredibly distressing, um, you know, a, a terrible attitude that people are having to kind of live with day in, day out in somewhere like Gaza. And I think that sentiment is is very widespread. I was at the solidarity demonstration here in Perth last night and a young guy said exactly the same to me, um, you know, that his family in Gaza who have suffered under the absolute indignities of, of living in this open-air prison for, for decades and now just um, basically preparing to die. Um, and, you know, at the same time as that kind of bombardment is going on, uh, over the last week we've also seen a real intensification of the Israeli project of dispossession and ethnic cleansing in other parts um, of both the Palestinian territories and in 1948 Israel, so in East Jerusalem. Um, that kind of project has been accompanied actually over the last few months by what is effectively increasingly violent and aggressive pogroms against Palestinians and other Arab populations who are living in Israel. So I don't know if you guys have seen any of the footage, but um, there's basically kind of Jewish supremacists that are roaming the streets, bashing people that they think look like Palestinian. And um, this looks quite like lynchings from the American South, it's it's very um, disturbing. But thankfully, all of that kind of horror is not the only part of the picture. So on the Palestinian side, we're seeing really significant mobilisations. So just last week, tens of thousands of Palestinians managed to repel an offensive by um, Israelis on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They built barricades and fought basically with their bare hands. Um, Similarly, residents of the Sheikh Jarrah neighbourhood have been resisting um, with their bodies and, and with their lives, the, the takeover of their neighbourhoods. And they had a, a victory, which is, is rare. They actually managed to stop um, this huge kind of Jewish supremacist march happening 
uh, and the evictions of Palestinian families have been postponed by Israeli courts for about a month. Um, and similarly, very large demonstrations um, have been occurring for months. So towns like Led in uh, the 1948 borders of Israel, um, where Palestinians have basically been defending themselves um, against these vicious mobs, have also been accompanied by demonstrations. Um, and over the last couple of days, in response to this whole kind of escalation, this cauldron of different elements, um, there have been big demonstrations in uh, one of the refugee camps in Gaza, in the city of Nazareth, um, in Ramallah in the West Bank. Um, and so far, all of these demonstrations show um, very little sign of stopping. Um, and I think because a lot of the mainstream press, if you read it, it, it you know, rightly focuses on, on some of the, the horror of what's going on. But I think we also want to get a sense of the degree to which the fact that Palestinians are resisting um, is actually starting to, uh, you know, transform, you know, their consciousness to give them more, more, more con confidence, really. Um, so I just wanted to read a little bit about, you know, that offer offer us a, a few little snapshots of some of the elements of resistance. Um, mm. So this is from from a report um, on one of the Palestinian resistance websites, um, and it says, in a symbolic image on Sunday, a Palestinian in Lid climbed a streetlight to replace an Israeli flag with a Palestinian one, a defiant scene nearly 73 um, years after Zionist forces ethnically cleansed the city in the Nakba. When police blockaded buses from entering Jerusalem for the holy night, um, passing drivers offered lifts to Palestinians who were prepared to walk miles to reach Al-Aqsa. In Haifa's neighbourhood in Wadi Nis um, Nisnas this week, Palestinian residents grouped together to stave off Jewish mobs, knowing that the police were more likely to help the attackers than stop them. On social media, a viral video showed Palestinian citizens laughing and cheering as an Israeli police car drove by unaware that a Palestinian flag had been jammed into its back door. Another popular video showed a Palestinian boy pushed out of Al-Aqsa by a crowd of police, quickly tossing his shoe straight at the head of a helmeted officer. Another one showed a Palestinian man breaking into a smile when his daughter, oblivious to the fact that her father was being arrested by police in his own home, impatiently inquired him about her doll. Even amidst the chaos, these moments of beauty and resilience should not be forgotten. Um, you know, and I think that's such an important kind of sentiment here. And, and I think we can talk about this later, hopefully, but there have been really significant mobilisations in lots of Western countries. So I think the kind of broad picture, just to kind of come back to the initial question, um, the broad picture of what we're seeing is um, an, an increasingly aggressive Israeli state force unleashing an offensive against Palestinians on a variety of different fronts. But what is heartening about this kind of current situation is that we're also seeing a Palestinian population that is refusing to go quietly. They're refusing to accept oppression and death and blood without a real response. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's definitely notable. And as you say, you have to sometimes search a bit more for coverage of that side of the equation. Uh, and people should, and we'll put some links to help people find good information. But um, I guess one of the questions that people have had about what's happening now is, was there something that triggered this or has there been something that's changed in Israeli policy or like, you know, because things do flare up every so often and, and um, you know, sometimes there's something you can point to to explain it. Is there something here 
that's going on that is worth understanding kind of um, in the background to the current situation? Yeah. I mean, I think there's obviously a much longer history here that we can delve into, but there's a whole series of much more recent factors that I think have prompted this kind of latest round of both aggression and resistance. Uh, So on the Israeli side, I think there are a few different factors. Um, One is that the most extreme right-wing elements of the Israeli state were really given a boost in their project by the Trump presidency. Um, They then felt comforted when Biden was elected and made it clear that he's going to stick to the general um, history of the Democratic Party basically backing Israel regardless of what they do. Um, I think secondly, Israel has also felt somewhat emboldened by the fact that a number more Arab regimes are normalising relations with them. And then simultaneously, there's also quite an intense um, political crisis in domestic Israeli politics. So uh, the Israeli Prime Minister, um, Benjamin Netanyahu, is looking at very serious charges of fraud and corruption. Um, And Israel has had four general elections in the last two years. Um, And the various kind of contesting forces just simply cannot manage to cobble together a coalition um, in order to be able to rule. And really, um, in Israeli politics, there is absolutely nothing that unites um, all of these disparate uh, political forces like a murderous war against the Palestinians. And I think, um, in general, that kind of political crisis that we're seeing in Israel belies the fact that Israeli politics has shifted to the far, far right. So... There are fascists, so people who are openly associated with the tradition of groups like the Jewish Defence League, which is basically the equivalent of the KKK. Um, They now have representatives in parliament and the sort of more general picture of Israeli politics is one in which open and explicit Jewish supremacists are much more dominant. Um, So all of that is on the Israeli side. Um, And then on the um, Palestinian side, we're seeing the picture of a population which has been increasingly pushed to the wall um, and really a population that can do nothing but resist in some ways. So until now, much of the ongoing and increasingly important resistance has been taking place in 1948 Israel. And the Palestinians there, um, many of whom have been historically much less likely to mobilise have been at the forefront of this current round of rebellion. Heaps of them are young and disconnected from many of the traditional parties of Palestinian politics. Um, And popular protest, often inspired by um, many of the wonderful protest movements which have been sweeping the world um, in the last couple of of years. Um, And they kind of make many references to these different kind of mobilisations and demonstrations. So there's a sort of a sense of internationalism about lots of this, Um, but many of these young people are quite hostile um, also to the Arab regimes that have co-opted so many Palestinian organisations before. And so they can see where all of these decades of compromisings, of talks, of negotiations, where all of this has got the Palestinian movement and they're actually just sick of it. Um, And so that's a really important development and um, there are commentators who are saying that they haven't seen that level of mobilisation really since the year 2000 and the beginning of um, the, the, the second intifada. So that's amongst some um, Palestinian populations. But as far as the kind of question about why is Hamas um, launching these kind of rockets um, now, 
I mean, I can't say for sure, but I think there are a few different elements at play here. Um, firstly, all of the difficulties facing people living in Gaza, um, which are in many ways just quite unbelievably appalling. Um, John Pilger, the Australian journalist, just a few years ago called this situation creeping genocide, and I think there's no better way of describing what's happening. Um, Gaza's an open-air prison. It's been declared, I was just reading a report from the World Health Organization this morning that anticipated that the Strip would become virtually uninhabitable over the next couple of years. So all of the things that make life possible, you know, access to clean water, access to fresh food, electricity, medicine, hospitals, um, care, all of these things are just increasingly difficult to come by. Um, and so the population is really at breaking point and now they're being bombed. So I think for Hamas to be seen to do nothing in that kind of context is totally untenable. Um, what's more, the kind of talks, the, the um, talks which were designed to bring Hamas and the Palestinian Authority together um, have once again stalled. And so Hamas is moving to try and, you know, bolster their position. They want to try and affirm their legitimacy. And so like lots of times in the past, they, um, in response to those different events, have developed an aggressive posture and are shooting rockets. And although, you know, in my opinion, this is a very futile strategy in terms of the liberation of Palestine, I think it nonetheless plays very well amongst um, both the population of Gaza and, um, you know, the, the broader Palestinian population because they're seen to be doing something. They're seen to be resisting in some way. Um, so I think all of those different kind of elements have, have come together to form really the, the, the background for what we're seeing at the moment. I guess sort of more more generally on how you explain the whole situation because we'll have listeners who um, you know haven't been through a period of of uh, increased resistance and oppression in in Palestine and, and committed by Israel like you know um, the Palestinian activist Steve uh, Salater who's written a lot and actually he sort of was forced out of academia because of his pro-Palestinian um, activism, wrote a, a piece last month that was, I thought, really good about Palestine and, and the way that it's portrayed as this really intractable conflict that kind of Israel-Palestine, it's a conflict. It's, you know, some some people have the impression that it's like this millennia-old kind of religious conflict and all these other theories and he wrote uh, that Palestinian is pa sorry Palestine is not complicated it's not a quagmire it's not impossible to navigate it's actually quite simple you can explain it quite simply mm -hmm. so <laughs> here you go to put you on the spot um, what is a simple way or what are the first things that people should know about the, the whole the broader history mm -hmm of Israel and Palestine? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a very simple answer and then there's a, a broader historical narrative that's really important to understand. I mean, I, I think one of the first things to say, and especially when, you know, even the kind of more liberal press talks about this as though this is the Israeli-Palestine conflict, um, and I think that even that implies an element uh, of um, equality which I think is, you know, is a complete misunderstanding of the situation. What we're actually seeing is the relationship between an oppressor nation 
um, and an oppressed people. So that's probably the most simple way of, of putting it. What we're seeing is a, a very aggressive nuclear power, Israel, um, opposing an increasingly immiserated and physically divided Palestinian population. This is a population that has aspirations to a national state, but they're unable to form one. So we're talking about a situation of an aggressive, violent nation that's run increasingly by um, something that, you know, of which at least significant elements are fascist, um, being backed to the hilt by all major Western powers and institutions. And that state is waging a genocidal war against the Palestinian population. So, you know, I think for any decent person, for any person who thinks of themselves as against injustice in the, this world, um, they should undeniably side with the Palestinians. There's no neutral line here. There's no complexity. It is simply a question of do you stand with the rich and powerful, with those who have nuclear weapons and would see a population wiped off the face of the earth, or do you not? But I think in terms of offering a bit more historical context and detail, um, Israel was founded as a colonial settler state in one of the most important strategic and economic regions of the world. Uh, hopefully, red flag listeners would know that the Middle East sits on huge reserves of oil and control of that oil has always been vital to the capitalist system. But beyond that, it's also a strategically very important part of the world in terms of trade routes and, and so on and so forth. Um, and that fact has always meant that the big imperial and colonial projects of the day have always desired to either directly control countries in the region or to rule them by proxy. And so Israel has served and continues to serve this purpose for the USA. It protects American economic and political interests in the region and it acts aggressively towards Arab national movements when they threaten America's imperial interests. Um, and so historically, Israel has also done a series of things the USA feels like it can't exactly get away with because um, they'd just be too on the nose. So like selling arms to apartheid South Africa in the 1970s, for instance, or um, to use Mossad, so Israel's secret service, to kill off um, political opponents. Um, and so in order to kind of maintain Israel's role, to, for them to be able to continue to play that role in the region, Israel is actually um, one of the biggest recipients of US military and economic aid. And that's just bipartisan policy um, with both Democrat and Republicans um, committed to backing Israel to the absolute hilt. And, and that goes for all presidents, um, you know, even the ones that, that people like to love. So Obama, um, you know, for instance, approved, you know, over $30 billion in aid to Israel over the next, um, you know, over kind of decade. Um, but I, I also think it's kind of important to see that Israel's sort of not the only state in the region to get major support from the US. And so up until, you know, fairly recently, you know, Egypt and, and Saudi Arabia, they get huge amounts of military and economic aid. Um, but I think there are a few elements to Israel that make it quite a unique um, you, you know, state for, for the imperial powers. So the fact that Israel is a much more stable ally um, than other Arab states because um, its citizens are for the most part bound up in the whole project of Israel. And so a whole, um, you know, raft of, of um, uh, polls that take, uh, you know, ask questions about ordinary Israelis' kind of attitudes to the Palestinians indicate that um, basically, there's a very high 
level of support for the Israeli state's um, you know, treatment of the Palestinians, um, which isn't to say that there are no class divisions or tensions in Israel and no opposition at all to the treatment of Palestinians, but it's markedly muted when compared to surrounding nations. So, um, you know, when you look at the the kind of the attitudes more broadly, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's not at all comparable. Um, and then the Arab states, on the other hand, have over the last decade faced um, revolutionary mass opposition at home. You know, large Palestinian diaspora throughout the region has very huge amounts of popular sympathy. Um, and the revolutions which kind of took place, um, you know, over a decade ago in, in the Middle East and North Africa kind of prove the, the levels of sympathy that people have. So, you know, all of that volatility that exists in the rest of the region, um, you know, should be contrasted to the stability of Israel. And it's that very stability that makes Israel such a, a valuable tool for the United States and for central, really, to the operation of capitalism um, across the Middle East. So mm. I think there's sort of both the shorter and, and longer answer there. Mm. And, of course, I mean, a lot of people um, see the relationship between Israel and the United States as, as key to understanding the situation and, therefore, the changing nature of politics in America potentially pointing a way to, to transforming the situation. And I guess, I mean, really with Joe Biden, like you'd have to be pretty naive <laughs> to think that Biden is going to be somebody who um, makes any change really in the United States policy on Israel. I, I saw a clip going around on social media of Biden making a speech when he was had more hair and, <laughs> Um, it was, it was decades ago. So a while ago, <laughs> um, about how if Israel didn't exist in the Middle East, mm. America, mm. the United States would have to invent an mm. Israel to play. You know, and it's like I think he said that it's it's the best use of three billion dollars of you know USA that you could have anywhere in the world. So I mean, is there anything that will change with Biden? Mm. And what do you think is the importance of that? Um, of the US's approach. Mm, yeah, yeah, I saw that clip going around too and read the kind of fuller transcript of it, which people should kind of try and get a handle on because it, it just goes through in extremely clear and stark terms all of the kind of the questions of what relationship Israel and the United States have with each other. Um, I think the kind of governing principle that guides the new Biden administration um, more generally, I suppose, um, in not just with regards to Israel and Palestine, but the, the overwhelming principle here is to attempt to strengthen and rehabilitate American global power and prestige and that kind of imperial project vis-a-vis -vis the threats um, of China. And the Biden strategy for doing that effectively is, one, to domestically rescue um, the American economy from the depths to which it's fallen, um, and, second, um, to internationally strengthen their military might and to try and reconfirm all of their historic partnerships and alliances um, that they've kind of developed over the decades to try and shore up this kind of um, megalith of, of, of global imperial power and might. Um, and Israel, I think, is really important on, on that front. Um, so over the last few days, Biden has really reiterated the standing position of the American state that effectively Israel can murder, they can maim, they can brutalise at their leisure, um, all in the name of self-defence, 
and the American state will do absolutely nothing. Um, perhaps they will make kind of a muted criticism every now and then, but in reality, that criticism, you know, means nothing. And and I think, you know, Israeli leaders all know that, that even if there's a kind of an occasional tut-tut from some um, American leader, it doesn't mean anything in terms of the amount of funding, in terms of the military links and ties um, and so on. And so I think, you know, although Biden sort of made it clear that he doesn't want this particular offensive to kind of spill out of control, um, but he and the US administration are just more than happy for Israel to try and ethnically cleanse the Palestinians and bomb them back into the dark ages. And, and none of that's out of the ordinary for Biden. Um, his entire political career has, you know, like Roz said, um, been marked by a very intense um, loyalty to Israel. Um, and not and not just to Israel, but to the the right of the Israeli um, political scene. So uh, Netanyahu apparently um, is very close to the Biden family. He's described them as belonging to his own family. Um, you know, they've spent many kind of holidays together and so on. Um, and you know that kind of um, closeness with the political far right in the country is is obviously quite significant um, here. And so I think the the kind of um, bipartisan policy with regards to you know Republicans, Democrats, and so on is really reflective of of that broader role that Israel plays for U.S. capitalism, and particularly now, particularly in the context of um, an increasing tension uh, between China and the United States. Um, and so I think you know part of that is why any party that wants to run U.S. capitalism is going to have to toe that line, and it's why. The idea that getting Biden elected, or or even the idea that that some um, you know more um, progressive Democrats have that they can somehow transform this um, a party of of American capitalism is is going to change on the question of Israel is I think um, absolutely futile. Hmm. Um. Okay. Well, in that light, in terms of change is not coming from the top down in this situation. I guess the protests are uh, particularly inspiring this this time around and I, I feel like, I mean, we were kind of chatting before we hit record here about the fact that this really does feel like a moment that's a bit different in the history of this um, oppression and, you know, the fact that there have been some victories in uh by the Palestinians in East Jerusalem and so on, and that there are protests and we keep seeing pictures of protests from around the world, solidarity protests, um, you know, in New York and in London and um, in the Arab world itself. Like this all seems to be a bit of a transformative moment. I guess we don't want to be too preemptive around any of that and who knows what might happen next, but in terms of the socialist argument about how we can win Palestine uh, liberation in Palestine, what significance do these protests and mobilisations have? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, like, you know, we can only hope that this is going to be the moment of some development of a new, you know, protest movement, political current, and, and you know, hopefully a kind of, you know, connected to a broader moment of rebellion and uprising across the rest of the Middle East and the world, um, because by God do we need it. But um, I think, you know, the kind of revolutionary socialist argument about how Palestine can be liberated is pretty fundamentally connected to a broader 
anti-capitalist analysis of the situation. And there are a few different elements to that. Um, firstly, um, that the anti-capitalist analysis understands that Israel exists as it does and is allowed to do what it does because of the role that it plays for US empire, but also for Middle Eastern capitalism more generally. And I think that kind of second point to, to, to that argument is often not made because Israel, despite all of the kind of jockeying between it and other Arab states, although it has to be said that there's increasingly less jockeying in recent decades, um, Israel is an absolute bulwark for the strength and power of capital um, across the region. So um, that's one element. The second element has to be that um, that Palestinians on their own are actually quite vulnerable. They have no serious military power and for all of their resilience and all of the absolutely phenomenal levels of determination, uh, that Palestinians cannot win in a struggle against the might of the Israeli state. Um, and connected to that, they can't look to our, any of the Arab regimes because the 20th and uh, 21st centuries has just seen example after example of the Arab regimes betraying and failing the Palestinians, um, or, or um, as is, is happening again in this kind of round of mobilisations, many of these regimes use the Palestinian cause in a quite a cynical way um, to bolster support for their own regimes for, for domestic politics. Um, so, and, you know, and some of those dynamics are, ha are happening in places like Iran. Then another element I think to recognise here is that there are really important class and political divisions within the Palestinian population. So there are extremely wealthy Palestinians who are connected into networks of wealth across the region and, and actually across the world. Um, and there are also Palestinians like those in Fatah and, and the PA um, who have made deals with Israel for some tiny bit of power and privilege in exchange for acting effectively as a police force um, within the Palestinian population. So I think if you start to put all of those different kind of elements together, you can move towards thinking about strategy. And one of the big questions that must be put is this, what force can poor and working class Palestinians stand alongside for the fight for genuine liberation? And I think fundamental here is the regional working class, the poor and oppressed of Egypt, of Lebanon or Jordan or Syria, um, you know, joining in a joint struggle to simultaneously um, overthrow their regimes and in doing so undermining the networks of, of, of power and you know, military strength and control and undermining and, and overthrowing the Israeli state. You know, and I sort of remember, you know, socialists have been making this kind of argument for a long time and people, oh, that just seems kind of completely mm. um, out of the ballpark. How could you even consider raising and such I, utopian I ideas? I remember, Vashti, um, mm. um, when I was first an organised socialist in around 2008, mm. that phrase that people were, start, were using around the road to li the liberation of Palestine runs through mm. Cairo. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> um, it was such a, it was sort of a shorthand way of trying to ex explain this point that you're yeah. making around mm. the, the power of the Egyptian working class in particular mm. and just thinking, oh, yeah, okay, sure, but what? how is that going to even be mm. a thing? Yeah. Mm. And then along came the Arab <laughs> Spring, I think, which is probably what yeah. you're about to say. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm. And, you know, I mean – you guys were both, you know, politically active during that time mm -hmm. and 
just that sense of a complete transformation of, you know, not just global politics, but, you know, of what seems possible of the horizons that, you know, people mm-hmm. feel. And, you know, I mean, Liam and I, we were kind of house sharing at the time and, um, you know, stayed up, you know, all night watching these just, you know, abs. I mean, it just brings a tear to your eye, the, yeah. you know, wonderful levels of resistance that occurred there. Did you want to jump in, Liam? We- yeah, I mean, you're right. I remember those days so clearly and it, it's sort of, it. I'm probably jumping ahead of the conversation here, but I was going to say like the, you know, the, this pointed towards, you know, the clearest indication yet that we'd ever seen of, uh, you know, the potential for the kind of pan-Arab, mm. you know, international revolution that we'd always said would pos- was mm. possible uh, and also that it would, you know, you know, push in the direction of, uh, you know, true liberation for the Palestinians. Um, and I guess as those revolutions were defeated, mm. um, you know, we got sort of further away from that, but also that, that the movement, you know, that revolutionary wave it didn't, get into Israel, you know what I mean? That, that's kind of the mm. evidence that went, going right back to what you said before about this the stability of Israel as this kind of unsinkable aircraft carrier in the Middle East, you know, and that it's free from the potential that always exists in these Arab regimes for the population to rise up and overthrow the dictators. Um, yeah, you know, you have this massive revolutionary wave that sweeps through all of the Arab regimes and, and didn't get into Israel, mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, you know, there were some quite significant kind of anti- austerity kind of mobilizations that occurred in Israel sort of around a similar period of time. But as with many of the kind of protest movements that exist in Israel, um, both then and now, they don't extend in general to the um, the question of Palestine and to what yeah. the actual logical implications are of saying that um you know, um, people in Israel should support, for instance, the right of Palestinian refugees to return um, and um, to end all of the um, settlements and to stop the occupation. What what are the implications of that? And, and you know, it's that factor that I think, I, I agree, it really um, leads to a sense of stability there. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think kind of reflecting on the Arab Spring and the implications of that, I mean, it wasn't just that, you know, these populations across the region who had suffered um, for, you know, up to 30 years, some of them, under, you know, these these terrifying dictatorships and all of the um, oppression that workers had to kind of suffer under that. It wasn't just that they were, um, you know, taking over their workplaces, their textile industries, that, that they were burning down police stations. It's that on a fundamental level they began to connect up all of the various different elements of oppression right across the region of which yeah. clearly the, the the Palestinian question has been central historically. Um, and one of the reporters from Red Flag, um, who's now one of the editors, Corey Oakley, was actually in Egypt um, when tens of thousands of revolutionary Egyptians stormed the Israeli um, embassy in Cairo and, you know, climbed up the, the walls um, you know, took down the Israeli flag and hoisted a Palestinian one, and you know, just that le- that moment of symbolic um, solidarity um, and and of the possibilities of what that solidarity might look like. The huge marches um, from Egypt onto the borders of um, Gaza and Egypt, 
and an attempt to kind of break it open. Um, again, you know, I think kind of give a little hint, just a small one, of where that kind of dynamic could head. Um, and when you think about the strength of the working class across the region, you know, these are millions of workers who work in the oil fields, who work, um, you know, in, in the huge textile mills, who work in the banks across the region, who work in the schools, who, who basically keep all of these societies functioning and running. Those people... Um, to kind of, uh, you know, mobilise um, not only against their own dictators, you know, both in the workplace and on a national level, but to begin the process of generalising um, what that struggle means for Palestine. And so I think, you know, all of that is um, was kind of what um, was expressed, the possibility of that in, in, in the Arab Spring. So the, the road to the liberation of Palestine still yeah. runs... <laughs> Yeah, all of that I think is really important when we're thinking about the situation there and watching the footage and thinking, uh, I think it's easy to become pretty like overwhelmed by the whole thing. Um, and so thinking about what is an, an actual strategy that can win and have, you know, that there have been some examples not very long mm. ago of this beginning to be shown in practice, I think, is, is worth holding yeah. on to. And, of course, all of the um, amazing protests and resistance and, like, if the Palestinians can resist where mm. they are and in the situation that they're in and the context that they're in, as you described at the very mm. beginning, like, what in Australia um, – is the purpose of protesting. I mean, obviously there's just a moral sense that we want to be supporting uh, the Palestinian people, but, like, are there other reasons to protest here that you, you want to give yeah, people? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the first, the first thing I think is, is, like you said, like if you're a decent person, if you're someone who wants to stand against injustice wherever it exists, then you need to get on the streets because... I mean, how could you live with yourself if you didn't? Um, but I suppose more generally and more politically, um, you know, the Australian state has basically since 1948 backed the creation of Israel and in, you know, m most international forums has been one of the countries which regularly votes with the United States um, to stop any, uh, you know, censure of Israel, to stop any criticism and to stop any um, change of kind of international policy towards Israel. And, and in Australia, just like in the United States, this is bipartisan policy um, with the exception of a few Labor politicians who kind of occasionally speak out. But, you know, both the Liberals and the Labor Party both committed um, to the, the relationship with Israel. Um, and I think in general, that's part of Australia staking its allegiance um, with the American bloc in global politics. Um, but more than that, like Australian business is also bound by a thousand different threads to Israeli business. There's heaps of companies, including quite significant military ones that operate in Australia. Um, a few years ago during um, some of the campaigning that I was involved with around Students for Palestine, uh, we did investigations into the connections that Australian universities have with the Israeli military, and there are actually a lot. 
Um, and so, you know, I think we need a really loud, strong, defiant protest movement here to try and force our government to break all ties with Israel, business, cultural, military, you know, everything um, with Israel, we can try and force that to happen here. It's not about appealing to politicians. It's about creating the kind of mass movement that has the capacity to force that kind of change to happen. Um, you know, but I think there's a few, a few kind of other elements like mass demonstrations across the world. They matter to those Palestinians who are resisting. Um, you know, this is a population that often feels completely isolated, um, you know, alone. So, so giving confidence um, to the Palestinians who are mounting their rebellion um, to see that despite the best intentions of the rich and powerful in Israel and the United States and Australia to kind of, um, you know, demoralise them, to, to, you know, dispirit them, um, to destroy, you know, any confidence that they might have to struggle. When we mobilise, it sends a signal to them that they're not alone. Um, and I was actually thinking last night in the demonstration in Perth, you know, just how important these protests are in giving confidence to an oppressed population here. You know, the, the Palestinian population um, and Muslims more generally in Australia have been subject to a very intense campaign of Islamophobia um, since the beginning of the, the, um, the war on terror. And I think when you know, Muslims and Palestinians and, uh, you know, Lebanese and, um, you know, all of the other the populations who, who suffer this terrible racist offensive, you know, and manage to come out into the streets um, to yell, to chant, mm. to laugh, to demonstrate, to, you know, mm. be defiant, um, you know, to, to all of the politicians who would basically brand this population as less than human or all terrorists or something, I think that kind of rebellion to say we refuse to be intimidated by your lies about us and we're going to keep pushing back against the racism that this population has been subject to for decades, um, all of that is, I think, a really a, another really vital part um, of, of the, the importance of these demonstrations. Um, and, and as far as I understand it, there are ones that are slated to take place next weekend. And so, yeah, I just think it's it's imperative for everyone to get out onto the streets to help organise them. Um, you know, but more than that, I would say it's also imperative to become a revolutionary and to help in the global project to unseat those people who are either waging or endorse the waging of this absolutely brutal war against the Palestinians that yeah. we're seeing at the moment. I just want to pick up on what you said there too about the the kind of inspiring, you know, the impact that the Palestinian resistance has on oppressed people around the world. Because I think that's one of the things that is has always marked out the Palestinian struggle, isn't it? It's just like it's, you know, there can be other struggles of oppressed people around the world all the time, and there are. But when the Palestinians move, it, there's something about that particular struggle and it's important, you know, the importance of Israel to international capitalism and all the rest of it that just means that it's it's electric. It is a lightning mm. rod, and 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 you you know you described the the joy and everything on the streets of Melbourne today during the rallies, and it, it reminded me of something that my dear Palestinian friend and comrade Jamil uh, once told me that uh, you know when he was a young boy and <laughs> used to slouch a bit, uh, his tater, his grandma uh, used to say, "Stand up straight, Jamil. You're a Palestinian." 
<laughs> and I just thought that's like that is that's it, you know, like the pride that comes from generations of people who have refused to be mm. cowed, you know, like it means something. It means something to people mm. around the world. They recognize yeah. it. Yeah, you know? yeah, and I think that whole thing that one of you said before about the fact of the ongoing existence of the struggle, um, you know, just becomes a, a lightning rod for people. And you know, this sense that if, despite everything, this population is able to keep on coming back, you know, decade after decade, despite you know the most horrendous levels of repression and oppression, um, you know, that's kind of an, an argument for all of us. And you know, I think that that Palestinian slogan of existence is resistance or resistance is existence, whichever way you put it, um, <laughs> both are true. And, um, I mean, I, I said in a Red Flag article that I wrote uh, just a couple of days ago um, about those series of images which have been going around of the Palestinians who have been uh, arrested um, and photos have been taken of them kind of in the process of, of their arrest and and you know there's a heap of them that are just kind of grinning um you know grinning not in a sheepish way but in you know a bold defiant way and i think that whole kind of thing about you know you can go for years for decades being under the thumb of you know the people who do not want your people or you know people like you to live to breathe um, and and that can have a, just a disastrous effect on your confidence and and your your feelings of of worth. Um, but through the process of standing up, that's you know how you become human. That's how you can start to to feel you know a purpose in this world. You know whether it's from Burma, um, you know where very similar sentiments are kind of being expressed at the moment to to Palestine. In you know that's part of the the dynamics of struggle, and, and that's why for revolutionary socialists is just so important, um, you know, to, to do everything in our power to stand in solidarity with these movements as they occur. Yeah. Jump in, everyone. Get involved. And we'll put the links to the upcoming protests and hopefully a, a more ongoing um, campaign of resistance here in Australia as well to our government and also in solidarity with the Palestinians. Thank you so much, Vashti, for your no time. Anytime. And expertise. And um, yeah, free Palestine. Mm. This is Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs>